Good afternoon, everyone, um, and thank you for joining us. We are here with the Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversation with Scientists. Since early in 2021, we've been sharing the science behind today's most important health topics. Coffee Conversations is brought to you by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment, a statewide nonprofit working to improve health and advance health equity in Wisconsin. I am Dr. Katherine Quinn, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine in the Center for AIDS Intervention Research at the Medical College of Wisconsin. And you are all in for a real treat today. I am joined by Dr. Hermanshu Agrawal, and Dr. Agrawal is an Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Agrawal is a clinical psychiatrist specializing in child, adolescent, and adult psychiatry. We will be covering a lot of great questions that we have regarding the science behind seasonal affective disorder. And I encourage all of you watching to drop any questions you have um, and any comments you have on the topic into the chat and we'll be getting to as many of those um, as possible today. But I think this is a really great topic for us given this time of year um, and given our location in Wisconsin. And I think this is um, something that will be of interest to a lot of us today. So let's get started. So welcome, Dr. Agrawal. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. Can you start by just telling us what is seasonal affective disorder? Oh, sure. So seasonal affective disorder is, is a medical condition. It's a, a chronic medical condition and uh, 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 it, it's episodic. So, you know, just like, uh, so, like so many other medical conditions like eczema or asthma or psoriasis, uh, it comes and goes. Similarly, seasonal affective disorder is uh, affect means mood or you know what the, the uh, what we see outwards as mood. So, seasonal affective disorder is a medical condition wherein, at least for two consecutive years, people have uh, 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 episodes related to changes in mood, but also other things that that meet criteria for what we call major depressive disorder. So, in other words, it's episodes of major depressive disorder that only occur in certain seasons and not any other time for two consecutive years. And so uh, major depressive disorders is uh, is a medical condition where you have any five out of nine symptoms, according to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So, you know, uh, someone that's having a major depressive disorder is someone that's uh, been afflicted for two weeks or more, where uh, where their most of their day is spent in five out of these nine following symptoms. So they're feeling down or depressed or sad or sometimes irritable or um, they have uh, changes to their appetite, eating too little, eating too much. In seasonal affective disorder, tends to be overeating rather than undereating. Um, there might be sleep changes, um, uh, major depressive disorder, either sleeping too little or sleeping too much. With seasonal affective disorder, uh, it tends to be too much, uh, and especially uh, slump in the afternoons uh, uh, in someone's day. Uh, feelings of worthlessness or hopelessness, uh, poor concentration, or uh, frank thoughts about hurting oneself, suicidal thoughts, or you know, passive suicidal ideation, like I wish I went to bed and never woke up again. Psychomotor slowness, so you're moving slowly where other people are noticing, or the opposite, agitation. Um, and uh, fatigue, just a feeling of tiredness, which actually is uh, rather specific or prominent in people with seasonal affective disorder. So the seasonal affective disorder, which is kind of, kind of sort of a subtype of major depressive disorder where it only happens in certain seasons. And the most common type of seasonal affective disorder happens in fall or winter. 
but there are some people that are known to have uh, depression only in spring or summer. But of course, that's minority. And then uh, um, there's also a major depressive disorder with seasonal variation. In other words, people who might have depressive episodes any time of the year, but they tend to have uh, ebb and flow. Uh, usually it's worsening in, in, in winters and fall. So when there's less sunlight. I hope that that helps. I hope that wasn't too That is a great overview. Thank you. Can you give us a sense of how prevalent seasonal affective disorder is? Oh, sure. So, you know, uh, there's uh, there's actually a wide uh, array of, uh, so different studies will plot it at different times, but the, the one that I found most useful or the most consistent is anywhere between 0.5% to 2.5%. So, um, so either one out of 200 or, you know, um, uh, two and a half uh, uh, people out of 100 uh, tend to have uh, this in America. This is our American statistics um, uh, across America. And uh, it tends to be uh, more prevalent in women. Uh, although there's some mixed uh, uh, feelings about that. Some people say that that is based on poor data. But at least the data we have so far says that it's more prevalent, four times more uh, likely to happen in in uh, uh, in uh, people that uh, um, uh, were assigned female at birth. So, you know, AFAB. And uh, so women that way. Or, uh, and it's more likely to occur in your younger ages, starting at 18. So it's... Uh, um, and uh, um, it's... It tends to correlate with northern latitudes. So the northern you go in geographical location, the more prevalent they say that seasonal affective disorder is. Uh, if I might go back to completing the definition of seasonal affective disorder, actually. So anything is a disorder and should be a disorder only if it actually impairs your functioning. So all of those things I said before, if it's not impairing your functioning, it's not a disorder. And I think that's so important to say in order to not overlabel or mislabel people. Yeah, that's a really helpful distinction. Um, can you talk more about just in general the the seasonality aspect of this? So, how how do or can seasons affect someone's mood? Sure. So actually, you know, uh, the 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 studies so far are fascinating, and and let me start by saying that there is no sure shot, um, hundred percent theory that really explains it completely. We're still in the in the uh, in the right in the thick of trying to discover what might be here. So what I'll be talking about are leading theories. So please know that this is subject to change. As you know, unlike our cousins, like internal medicine and surgery, which are thousands of year old, psychiatry and viral medicine is only 50 or 60 years old or a hundred years old if you count psychoanalysis. So needless to say, we're right in the beginning of the, of the research process. But so these are the leading theories. So um, rather than specifically seasons, the leading theory says that season, seasonal affective disorder has to do with amount of sunlight per day. And of course, as you would, uh, you would uh, not be surprised to, to observe or realize that generally seasons ebb and flow in terms of how much sunlight is present. So that's why for the most common variety of seasonal affective disorder, fall and uh, winter, especially in states like Wisconsin in more northern latitude, as the amount of sunlight starts to recede. And of course, you know, in the in the Arctic Circle, they say there's only a few minutes or a few hours of sunlight every day sometimes. But in, even in our geographical location, as the amount of sunlight begins to recede with the fall and uh, winter, um, seasonal affective disorder uh, can manifest in people that are vulnerable to it. Not to everyone, but to people that are vulnerable to it. So the most um, interesting uh, theory, at least in my opinion, and leading theory has to do with something called melanopsin. 
So melanopsin is actually a protein for, uh, in our eyes. And it's found in individuals, even in, they're found even in blind individuals. So, you know, the reason that we can tell color and black and white are because of proteins or receptors in our retina, in our, in our eye called rhodopsin, rods and cones, as they say. And uh, uh, that's what helps us discern black and white and color. And uh, uh, melanopsin is, it, it doesn't discern uh, color. It, it helps detect light, sunlight, especially the, sun, the spectrum of light. So it's very physics heavy, uh, which is why my wife would be very good at explaining it probably better than me. She's a cardiologist, but still <laughs> I'll try my best. So um, when uh, uh, we have melanopsin in our, in our eyes, uh, it uh, picks up on sunlight the, the, and the waves. And so the waves of the sunlight spectrum when they hit melanopsin, it activates. And this leads to, uh, and, and the, it, it activates, so it starts a charge. As you know, our brain is a lot of neurons and literally wires. And so when it gets charged, it sends a pulse back to different parts of our brain. And depending on which different parts of our brain it goes to, that's how it, it affects uh, many parts of our functioning. Uh, for example, it, it, one of the uh, uh, wires goes to the hypothalamus or, or to be, to uh, use a little bit more nerd talk, SCN or suprachiasmic nucleus, which, uh, chiasmatic nucleus, which is, uh, which is uh, known to be kind of the uh, master switch when it comes to our circadian rhythm or sleep-wake cycle. So when sunlight comes uh, into our eyes, it, uh, the mel melanopsin gets activated, sends a charge, and it basically tells our sleep center, the pineal gland and the hypothalamus, it's day. That's why even people who are visually impaired or, or, you know, legally blind can actually tell whether it's day or night, sure. which, which, which I find uh, fascinating and, and humbling. Um, and uh, similarly, uh, there's uh, some theories that say that, that uh, it, can, it has a direct relationship to the production of serotonin in our brain. And as we know, serotonin is the, is the, is the, leading, uh, uh, or is, is the, the leading theory uh, about depression. And anxiety has to do with uh, this chemical called serotonin. So hopefully you can see that, you know, that the melanopsin or sunlight uh, and the amount of times that the sunlight is present in a day and the, uh, the duration, the number of hours or minutes that melanopsin is activated in our eyes, uh, how this makes sense that how it's related to our sleep-wake cycle, but also to depression because it's modulated through serotonin. Yeah, absolutely. That is so fascinating um, and a really helpful explanation. So thank you for that. How, what can, what are some practical things then that people can do um, during these longer and darker days to sort of beat the blues, if you will? Yeah, great question. And uh, um, 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 so again, I'll start off by saying because the research is still developing. Um, this is, you know, the way we stand right now is that there's uh, mixed research outcomes on most of the things that we've talked about. There are some, there are some studies where there's clearly more data that supports practical things that we could do, and then the other practical things, they're mixed uh, results. Having said that, I think, based on my experience and the experience of others that I respect, um, please remember this. This is what I would say to everyone tuning in: is uh, when it comes to practical things, remember that each one of us is an individual. Right. So um, take all of these things that I'm about to say in stride. But in the end, the most practical thing you can do is uh, trust yourself and trust what works for you, especially if it's healthy. And the most practical thing that can you do is do nothing in excess. 
and practice moderation. So I'll, uh, with those two things, I'll start with, uh, you know, so because our, uh, uh, our brain uh, depends on uh, melanopsin, because it depends on basically um, a system that tells us when it's day and when it's not, and people that are vulnerable seasonal affective disorder or, you know, winter blues, because it's so dependent on what's coming into our uh, to our eyes, and it's unfair that way. Because uh, if the if what's coming into our eyes tells us that it's not winter, we tend to get blue, or you know, tend to get down. We can actually, and I'm and I'm borrowing this straight from uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, and and what Dr. Aaron Beck would say is we could we can actually trick or boss back this bully, boss back this unfairness. We can we can try and trick if all goes well our brain and our eyes into thinking it is summer or there is light. So practical things that I would say uh, revolve around um, do everything you can, because it's going to be a lot of work. This is not something that we'll take for granted, like the sun, which comes and we take it granted. Do everything you can to trick your eyes and therefore your brain into believing that it's summer or there's this sunlight, whatever that might look for you, if that makes sense. So uh, yeah. uh, go ahead. Oh, so then I was going to ask, we... Do you feel like any of those mood, winter lamps, light lamps um, are helpful to people? And uh, we also had a question come in um, from someone watching to ask if you had any recommendations on which kind of lamp to use or maybe even what to look for if you think that that's a good route to go. This is such a great question. So, so again, I will say that, you know, um, um, those the light lamps or the high lux lamps are probably one of the bright light therapy as we call it is probably one of the most uh, uh, most studied um, scientific interventions when it comes to seasonal affective disorder but also winter blues right so 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 the so the seasonal variation of depression and uh, and uh, it absolutely helps. However, as I said, the results are individual. So it has helped so many people that I know personally and professionally. However, it does not help everyone. So really what you need to do is determine if you are on that profile, what your relationship with light therapy is. And so um, I would say it might take, unfortunately, it might take some uh, some trial and error. I would say pick out a light. They're all equally likely to work as long as it's at least 2,500 lux. Now I used to, I used to be told that it needs to be at least 10,000 lux, but now new literature is showing that at least 2,500 lux. Here's what I'll say. There's no downside in getting high lux 10,000 versus 2,500, especially if the costs are not that different. When Bright Light first came out, the costs were astronomically high. And actually, it was only prescribed. You couldn't buy it. Now, um, you can get it from any uh, many online vendors or even you know in, in, in uh, retail. So what I would say is there is no good research that shows that one kind of light is better than the other. So therefore, the best researcher is you. You are the expert on yourself. Uh, you might need to, uh, especially if there's a, a light that's reasonably priced that where you can vary the amount of light, uh, the lux, so if it can go from 2,500 to 10,000 or more, try different things out every week, but try for at least a week or so and see if, if you can tell a difference in your mood or uh, not just your mood, but also your tendency to be tired in the afternoon, your tendency to take naps, your tendency to crave sugars or carbohydrates. So these are the things to to monitor because this is, what the leading, uh, the, the most common uh, manifestations of winter blues or seasonal affective disorder can be. So I would say, uh, if someone's telling you that this light is better and clinically proven to be better than this light, 
well, that's what happens when you mix capitalism and healthcare. <laughs> but <laughs> if we follow the science, I don't think there's any science uh, that says that one kind of light or one kind of product is better than the others. That is really great advice. Is there a way that you would recommend people use these lights? Is there a certain recommended amount of time or time of day? Right. So there's recommendations and guidelines, which are always changing. Right. So, okay. again, in the end, I can tell you that, you know, over just in the last five years or 10 years, I would say, I've heard that it used to be one and a half hours per day. Then it used to be at least 45 minutes a day. Then there were some recommendations about at least this much. You should, it should, should be at least at this much distance or no further than this distance. But what I have found anecdotally uh, is uh, try it out. Try different, uh, different uh, times, different durations in a day different distances from where you're sitting and then see which one works best for you. In the end, what matters is results. What's making you feel better. Great. And I have one last question related to light lamps. Someone had a question um, and stated that they're using a red light therapy at home. And is that helpful? Yeah. So great question. And actually uh, there's uh, the leading literature, the, the most recent literature right now is actually related to blue light. So, you know, people are actually trying out different spectrums of the light, red light, blue light. Here's what I will say. If it helps you, then it is helpful. Only because everyone's profile, everyone's melanopsin profile, everyone's, uh, you know, the billions of neurons we have is so individual and unique. So if you have found that a certain spectrum of the light is more useful to you, if you found that, you know, the dawn stimulator lights that, that, that you know, some very clever people have created where it's gradually increasing to emulate what you know, uh, what uh, the sun is supposed to do to our eyes, even though our, our eyelids are closed. If that's more useful, whatever works for you is what's useful. But it, but but uh, the corollary is also true that one one kind of treatment does not uh, does not help everyone. It's not like a blanket treatment. I hope that helps. Yeah, I think it does. I think sometimes we we look to have a very um, black and white answer, and that doesn't seem to be the case when we're talking about seasonal affective disorder. So. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, how might reduced physical activity contribute to seasonal affective disorder in the winter months? Yeah, so I have two answers to that, right? So the first answer that I wish to say is that, um, uh, the, the first way that I wish to answer that is that it's not necessarily reduced physical activity that leads to seasonal act, uh, affective disorder. It's rather that increased physical activity or keeping physical activity high as much as uh, summer months for those of us that uh, are more active in summer months actually is a nat it produces uh, um, natural uh, internal antidepressants. So you know we 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 believe well, we're strong believers in what we call the behavior activation theory, which is you know um, a certain amount of physical exercise actually uh, releases uh, chemicals that are, that eventually directly and indirectly lead to. Their antidotes to depression, or, or you know, they, they can then can they can be at least short-term and long-term boosters to our mood. So um, it's not necessarily that because of reduced activity we're more depressed. It's that uh, in the summers when we're act more active, we are less depressed. Um, actually, that was there's no two ways. That's the one way that we, uh, those are the uh, one answer that I wanted to give. So I would say uh, most experts, and I would agree with them, say that if you can continue that. And uh, 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 anything that you can do to uh, engage in behavior activation, whether it's whether it's uh, physical activity or social activity, anything that boosts dopamine, uh, 
Uh, and that's an overtly simplistic way to say it. It's not just dopamine, it's a bunch of other chemicals too. Glutamate, serotonin, um, anything that you know that that can bump those, those uh, uh, levels, um, keep doing. How do we know what bumps our level? Because it's not like we walk around with, you know, portable uh, functional MRI machines and say, oh, my dopamine today was such and such. Um, I would say sometimes it's very useful to keep a mood diary. And actually now there's apps that can do that. So just log and notice what your mood's been on a daily basis and sometimes within the same day. And that might give us some clues. If you do that for a week or a month, it might give us some, and then and note what you did that day. And sometimes it can lead to some patterns about, oh, if I go ax throwing with my friends on those days, I, my mood seems to be better. Or if I watch uh, uh, Netflix on, on, uh, no longer than an hour a day, sorry, uh, I, uh, I should say probably for proprietary reasons, uh, if I binge watch something on a streaming network, <laughs> sorry, Netflix, absolutely, uh, for uh, uh, less than an hour, then I feel better. You know, those patterns might might tell you what your profile is. That is very helpful. One of the things you mentioned early on was sort of what makes this become a disorder, right? When it becomes, um, gets to the point where it's interfering directly with someone's life. Um, and you talked a lot about some of the signs and symptoms that we should look out for in ourselves, but I'm curious if there's anything in particular that people should be watching for in themselves or others that would be a potential indicator that they need to seek professional help, that it is sort of moving from this I'm just feeling the winter blues and cold and dark and this is seasonal affective disorder and I really do need professional treatment. It's a great question and an important question. Thank you for asking that, Dr. Quinn. So um, as a child psychiatrist, um, uh, my teachers, one of the best lessons I've received from my teachers is this, you know, for any person, they should think about what is someone generally of my age supposed to be doing in life? What are my developmental goals and, and, and what should I be doing? So, you know, um, a 15-year-old, what uh, let's say a, 50, a, a, a stereotypical general 15-year-old in Wisconsin, what are they supposed to be doing in life? Well, they're supposed to be um, um, attending school and getting good, decent grades or, you know, uh, grades that are, uh, that are good for them. They're supposed to have friends. They're supposed to have hobbies. They're supposed to be maybe looking at a, at a summer job, if that's the culture of the family, or maybe looking into dating. Uh, they should be arguing with their parents at least a little bit, uh, you know, again, stereotypical. That's, I guess what I'm saying, that's part of the normal thing. Someone that's my age should be showing up to work, should be able to function well, should be enjoying work, uh, should be getting along with his uh, family, uh, should be uh, getting good sleep, should be getting some hobbies, should be uh, you know, uh, not avoiding social activities, should not be drinking excessively or things like that. And so who you are, who you've always been and who someone's uh, in the norm of your of your demographics is supposed to be doing, if you find yourself deviating from that, and especially if you think that, it, so that's what we call functioning, right? Or adulting, if you want to. If we feel like anything, that, that something is uh, encroaching upon our ability to do our normal be a normal human being and live a normal life, um, that might be an indication to look for professional help. And of course, there's all sorts of professional help, right? So uh, I don't want uh, the, the viewers to think professional help means shrink, right? So there's self-professional help. There's all sorts of professional help that can help us with our mental health, music therapists, occupational therapists, chiropractors, uh, dietitians, um, 
physical trainers, you know, so uh, therapists, of course, talk therapists, medication management, uh, but there's all sorts of professional helps that often we don't think about. But there's also self-help books, for example, right, or or uh, or guided meditation, things like that. That can be semi-professional. Uh, that could be part of professional help too. But basically, doing more than you usually do. What I what I what I would put as extra or professional help. Yeah, that is probably one of the best, um, you know, recommendations I've heard in terms of how to how to think about whether or not you know, additional help of any kind is something that we should be looking for. So I truly appreciate that. May I add one more point to that? Yeah. Which is that don't forget to ask people who know you better than you do. Now, so that might be different people for different, uh, you know, different folks for different people. For me, it's my wife. She she knows me better than I do, which is uh, sometimes not, uh, is not fun because you're like, yeah, I wish you're right. <laughs> You know, so it's not, it might not be, I'm not saying that it might be always happy, you know, hunky-dory, yes, uh, especially if they're saying things like, yeah, you're not yourself. You know, sometimes we don't want to hear that. But uh, uh, if we can show the courage and the vulnerability to ask people that know us better than we do, that can sometimes be immensely useful. Yeah, great, great advice. Um, as we're sort of getting toward the end of our time, I want to return to some of our um, listener, viewer questions. Um, there's a lot more interest in the lights, and so I want to return to that a little bit. Um, someone did ask a question um, about a potential concern about the lights. Is there any reason to be concerned or any potential problems with any of those lights informing cataracts? Oh, so I'll tell you this. The answer is I don't know, but I promise I will find out. So if they would like to reach out to me or if there's some way uh, Michael, I don't know if anyone can 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 uh, if there's some way that I can find out and and post it somewhere. I I promise I'll find out. That is a very good question. In my recent return to the literature to prepare for this, when I looked around, I did not find anything that was specific about cataract. But I think that's a fascinating and important question. Um, and uh, my, the answer is I don't know. As far as I know, there is no concern about increased risk of cataract. But that does not mean that that it's not there. But I will find out. Yeah, I do believe there will be an opportunity for us to um, post some additional resources for folks. So that might be a place. I will make a note of it. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. One of the other questions is about how these lights work. Is it something that you need to look directly into the light or is it just about making the room brighter, um, mimicking sort of sunlight? Great question. So if we are to follow the theory that, you know, this has to do with mimicking sunlight, then I would say we don't have to look into the light. Because remember, you know, uh, um, melanopsin is working even when our eyelids are closed. So we could literally be sleeping and closing our eyes and and, uh, and uh, it could be effective. Having said that, if you feel like that the only way that it works is looking at the light from time to time, that's fine. Now, as long as you're not looking at the light that's very, very bright like this all the time where you're getting floaters or blinders. I don't want my opt optician and ophthalmologist colleagues to say, what are you doing? Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, um, I would say that, you know, um, tweak it based on what works best for you. I would actually like to add something that, that I was reminded of by the last person's excellent question about, you know, contraindications or risk factors. So one thing to keep in mind is that if you have been diagnosed or if you suspect that you might have bipolar disorder, 
you know, so um, I would say that it's it's best if uh, a trained professional has diagnosed, has, has helped in the diagnosis. But if you know that you have bipolar disorder, then there are some studies that have not been debunked. So I, I, this is my this is also my belief that that you should use uh, bright lights with extreme caution if you have history, history of mania, if you've ever been manic, because there are concerns that uh, uh, that uh, sometimes not for everyone, but sometimes it can spark mania. Great, thank you for that. Can you speak to um, any recommendations to use supplements like vitamin D, magnesium, or any other vitamins that might be helpful um, for seasonal affective disorder? Yes, uh, again, very pertinent question. Bottom line is that there's uh, studies that are mixed. So the initial wave of studies that came for both vitamin D and magnesium actually uh, were all overwhelmingly positive. And so everyone started getting vitamin D levels. Everyone started getting, you know, over-the-counter supplements. And then now there's more studies since then that are kind of questioning that. So in the end, I would say something like vitamin D and magnesium, especially over-the-counter uh, magnesium, especially if it's from a trusted source. As far as I know, there's no harm in taking it. Um, so that's what I said to my patients is absolutely go ahead and take it. Um, sorry. There are some, you can get toxic in vitamin D, but usually it takes a humongous amount uh, to, to get toxic on it. So uh, as, as long as you're uh, following the instructions on the over-the-counter supplements, that would be fine. Uh, one thing to keep in mind, especially with vitamin D, is that make sure it's at least 2,000 international units, which is not the same as sometimes the milligrams or the, or the, or the units that they show on the, on the, on the uh, bottle label. So uh, the easiest thing to do is go to your pharmacist when you're taking it, from, if you're getting it from a pharmacy, and say, does this have at least 2,000 international units? At least that's, so in other words, if you're gonna take something, you might as well take it enough. Yeah, great, great advice. And I think our last question um, before we wrap up this afternoon, can seasonal affective disorder show up at any time in someone's life? Yes. Um, it's most likely to show up between the ages of 18 and 45. But again, humans are individuals. Um, I have known people, because uh, I, I work with children too, that where I'm convinced that there's some seasonality or uh, if not uh, uh, frank seasonal affective disorder in teenagers. And of course, you know, uh, I've, I've seen seasonal affective disorder having an um, onset later in life, especially if people move from, uh, you know, to a place with less light light exposure, like a northern latitude, for example. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to thank Dr. Agrawal for joining us today, and we appreciate you for taking the time to talk with us on this important topic, and also all of our viewers who um, really had a lot of great questions, um, and I hope that you found this as fascinating and informative as I did. Yeah, I've always wanted to do this. Thank you. And and, <laughs> and, and this was so much fun. So it was. If we didn't get to your question today, or if you have additional questions that come up, feel free to drop us an email at conversations at ncw.edu. And I hope you all will join us next month for another virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist. We look forward to um, talking with you or seeing you again then. Thank you. The Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists is sponsored by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment. Coffee Conversations with Scientists occur monthly as Facebook Live events and are produced by the Medical College of Wisconsin. We hope you join us next month for another virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist.